Tonight we greet an old friend, Barbara Leeming, uh, who is a major biographer. She's really a master of the biographical art, as she established way back in 1985 when she did a wonderful book about Orson Welles. And that was when we met. That was. I said tonight when I came into the Tribune building, I felt like Orson was walking in the room <laughs> with me. I remember yeah. vividly my first trip here to talk to you, and I think it was the first interview I ever did alone. Uh -huh. And Orson had prepped me beforehand on the telephone. You know, what was I supposed to do in Chicago? Because this was the hometown, and I had to do a good show. And I was so scared. <laughs> I was so nervous. Uh -huh. And I think I was mostly nervous that he was going to somehow get wind that <laughs> it went badly or something. Well, we had, no, I, we had a great time that Oh, night. yeah. It was such and then you went on some years later to do a very well-received, much-commended biography of Catherine Hepburn. Yes, that was, <coughs> that was, actually, that was Orson's idea. But for me, it, that book was a real turning point because it was the first time that I was able to do a book that was as much about history as about a, a, a character from, from the movies or something, because that book was very much about the women's movement and her mother's involvement in that and then how that played out in Catherine Hepburn's career. So it was a great turning point for me. and was one of the most fun books I ever did. So I would suppose that your next book, which was a bio biographical study of Jacqueline Kennedy, is sort of a transition to the political world. It very much was a transitional a book. It was very much a transitional book. The reason I did the Jackie book was it was actually just about her life with Kennedy during the presidency is that I wanted to ease my way into a presidential biography. Again, I've wanted to do one for, since the very beginning. Orson said to me years ago, when you know what you're doing, that's where you go with a biography. You do a precedent. Now, in the book about Jacqueline Kennedy, uh, her husband, JFK, comes off as really quite a cad. He is. <laughs> I mean, he was. He was. On one level. Was. On one level, he was. And that was one of the reasons why this book exists, because I had the experience, which I think every single biographer of Kennedy has had from the, the, the mm. very beginning. I mean, once they started to actually talk about what was going on with Kennedy, we've all gone for the same thing. For 40 years, we've thought that if we could find out one more woman or one more illness, or one more drug scene. Somehow we were going to know All the of man. which we had plenty of. Absolutely. Not, yeah. And what I learned from my own experience is that that doesn't give you Jack Kennedy. It doesn't. And thus we come to the new book, which uh, by its very title indicates that you're looking at the other side of Kennedy. It is titled Jack Kennedy, The Education of a Statesman. Yes. Or it could be the biography of a statesman. It is, because the reason I called it the education of a statesman is that it's a very curious life. The education literally goes on until the last weeks of his life, literally the last weeks of his life, because through the entire life, what I discovered was the great conflict. It's a, he's a great dramatic character. The great conflict in Kennedy was between being mm. a politician or being a statesman. And what he wanted to be from the time that he was a child, and he's very much somebody formed by his books, by the books that he read. He also by the books that he wrote, that's foreshadowed by Profiles in Courage, Absolutely. in which he's looking at uh, the temptations to merely be a politician yeah. when you are required to be a statesman. Absolutely. The thing that went through everything, well, actually, it's, it's, it's even more personal than that, because it's a very simple situation. You've got a little boy who loves his father, worships his father. The only affection that Jack Kennedy knew was from old Joe Kennedy. And his father's rather fond of Hitler. Absolutely. And his father it, believes that anybody who 
thinks that there are such things as principles and duty and honor is a fool and is being used. Unfortunately, probably being used by the Jews. Absolutely, in Joe Kennedy's world. Among other things, that yeah. Joe Kennedy's an anti-Semite. He is. He absolutely was. But I think for Jack, the com for Joe and for Jack, the complication came when at the age of 15, Jack Kennedy read Churchill's The World Crisis and fell madly in love with Winston Churchill. Now you can't get two more disparate influences in one person's you know, life. This fine new book of yours, Jack Kennedy, The Education of a Statesman, could have been subtitled uh, America's First British President. Yes. What ended up... Well, I'll tell you, let me explain to you why I did the book the way that I did. Because the thing that I realized when I was working through the White House papers, I mean, when I did the, the Jacqueline book, I did all of the presidential research. And I did, you know, when went the way all of the Kennedy biographers have been. I led, lived in the Kennedy Library. I went to Washington. I did California. I did all the archives here. And somehow I felt that the one thing that was really intriguing were the sets of letters between Jack and Harold Macmillan, Prime Minister Harold Macmillan, who was the British Prime Minister during the Kennedy presidency. And there was something going on in those letters that I couldn't get. And I said to myself... I don't know why England is the place to go to look for this guy. Everybody has painted the portrait from Boston. What would happen if you went and you looked in London? And it was miraculous. I arrived in London, and that's where Jack Kennedy is. And, of course, that goes back to a very significant alteration in his life experience. When, at the age of... 21. 21. He goes to London, where his father is now the American ambassador to the court of St. James, as they call the American ambassador in England. And he falls in with a set of very bright, rather fey, young aristocrats. Yes. When he, when he arrived, his sister, Kick, who was Jack's favorite sister, That's Kathleen. Catherine. Kathleen, yeah. Well, Kathleen. Kathleen, right. Kick Kennedy, was the toast of London. And not just the toast of any London, but the toast of the most exclusive aristocratic set, the, what they called the aristocratic cousinhood. They're all related to each other by marriage, and it was the, the last of the great landed aristocracy, but also the landed aristocracies that still thought of themselves as political. And when Jack arrived, Kick had become the center of this set, and they fell in love with Jack immediately as well, because strangely enough, as some of them told me when I, when, when I arrived mm -hmm. in England, they were just baffled because he'd read all of the same books that they had read. He was talking about the same history that they were talking about. He was deeply involved in the glorious revolution and what would, and their fathers and grandfathers and whatever had been bringing them up from the knee with that. And they said to me, this was the strangest American that, you know, that, that, no. that they'd ever met. Who and, were your informants from that group? Who did you actually yeah. talk to? Oh, well, that was, I mean, I, I, I've had an advantage that over any of the other Kennedy mm -hmm. biographers because there are two things. When you try and do Jack Kennedy, first of all, you can't do Jack Kennedy without having read and studied Winston Churchill, but you also probably can't do him unless you've talked to these people because when I arrived in England, the first person that I talked to at length was the then Duke of Devonshire, Andrew Devonshire, mm -hmm. and his wife, Debo, who was one of the Mitford girls. You were asking me just before we went on the air, Debo was one of the five famous Mitford sisters. Very strange. A very family. strange family. Unity Mitford, her sister, was uh, more or less an intimate of Hitler's and Absolutely committed suicide in 
yes. in Germany when the war began. Yes, and she uh, and 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 another sister, sister of hers became an American communist. Yes, I mean they were completely split by by politics, yeah. and that political thing had a tremendous effect on Kick's husband, who was her bro Debo's brother-in-law. Very complicated relationships. Debo and Andrew were very violently anti-fascist, and and ha that had to be made very clear mm -hmm. during the war. But it's it's they. When I arrived in London, I thought that it would be very difficult to find this. Luckily, the first person that I talked to was Andrew Devonshire. And Andrew was now the Duke of Devonshire. The Duke of Devonshire, yeah. and he's actually just died. He died, and, yeah. and uh, Andrew was the most wonderful person that I've ever met in my entire life, except mm -hmm. for Orson, next to Orson, and wonderful in this sense. Andrew lives in history, lives in books, was interested in everything, and was thrilled that somebody was coming and asking him the questions that nobody had bothered to ask him. And the first thing that Andrew did with me when I started to talk to him about Kennedy, was he said, come with me into my Oval Office, mm -hmm. which is at Chatsworth, which was the, the ducal palace of the, of the Devonshire Dukes, and in this incredibly beautiful library with one of the greatest book collections in the world. Now, the great issue that was much in the air and that exercised these bright young aristocrats and that was also constantly debated in uh, Parliament and in the British papers and so on, in those years, the year 38, isn't 38, it? Yeah, when he arrived. Yeah, the great issue is what do we do about Nazism? Yeah. What do we do about the threat of uh, Hitler? And many in England, including Lady Astor, who was sort of the hostess that received yeah. all of those young people yeah. at some of her famous soirees, um, many of them in the Clibden set, as it was called, yeah. uh, wanted to yield to Hitler. In fact, saw Hitler as, in some sense, advantageous and useful for uh, British life because he was anti-communist. Yes. And at any rate, uh, there was much about him that sort of was appealing to some. Yes. Others were outraged and enraged, foremost among them, Winston Churchill, a member of uh, the House of Commons, uh, no longer holding a high post in government, but raging uh, against Hitler and raging uh, against the lack of preparation and the lack of militancy on the part of Great Britain as it uh, should be getting ready for the to meet the great threat of Nazism, but it was not doing so. In effect, the, con the, the conflict is between Churchill mm -hmm. and the then Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain. Neville Chamberlain. When we return from some commercials, which are already a few minutes overdue, we might listen to an early Churchill speech. These speeches had, a, not only his writings, but his speeches had a great influence upon the very young Jack Kennedy. And we'll hear one of them in which, in the very year 1938, he's warning us, warning America even, in the transatlantic um, speech that he's, that's played on American radio, warning us about the Hitlerian threat. We'll return to that and return to Barbara Leeming as we continue to draw from her very interesting new book, Jack Kennedy, The Education of a Statesman right after these words. The central theme, Barbara, of your new book, Jack Kennedy, The Education of a Statesman, is that there's a very close relationship between, well, I shouldn't say it that way, that there's a very strong Churchillian influence upon the young Jack Kennedy, which informs his later approach to campaigning for the presidency and then using the presidency. But Churchill was not all that aware of 
the young Jack Kennedy, was he? He wasn't at all aware of the young Jack Kennedy. The boys, the, the, the young, the, the formerly young boys, the boys that Jack knew in 1938, like Andrew Devonshire, Billy Hardington, who was the, 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 the boy that Kick eventually married, and David Ormsby Gore, who was his great friend and who eventually became the American ambassador mm -hmm. and who turned... The British ambassador to The British America. ambassador, I'm sorry, the British ambassador to Washington and who turns out to be the other great revelation of the mm -hmm. book because... He is Jack Kennedy's intellectual partner all the way through his entire life. There would be no Jack Kennedy without David Ormsby Gore. And one of the things that they used to do, all of the boys, is it was like sport for them. And like going to the races, yeah. you'd go to the commons and you'd watch Churchill. But here is, you watch Churchill and you listen, listen to, Churchill. to Churchill. Here is America listening to Churchill. And I'm sure Jack Kennedy must have heard this, though it was delivered in October um of 1938, Jack I guess been back. He, would, he was home. He, he was back, back here. That he, yeah, he, he, surely, heard, he yeah. surely heard this speech yes. uh, as Churchill is talking about the great problem in Europe. I avail myself with relief of the opportunity of speaking to the people of the United States. I do not know how long such liberties will be allowed. The stations of uncensored expression are closing down. The lights are going out. But there is still time for those to whom freedom and parliamentary government mean something to consult together. Let me then speak in truth and earnestly while that time remains. The American people and it seems to me formed a true judgment upon the disaster which has befallen Europe. They realized perhaps more clearly than the French and British public have yet done the far-reaching consequences of the abandonment and ruin of the Czechoslovak Republic. I hold to the opinion I expressed some months ago that if in April, May, or June, Great Britain, France, and Russia had jointly declared that they would act together upon Nazi Germany, if Herr Hitler committed an act of unprovoked aggression against this small state, and if they had told Poland Yugoslavia and Romania, what they meant to do in good time, and had invited them to join the combination of peace-defending powers. In that case, I hold that the German dictator would have been confronted with such a formidable array that he would have been deterred from his purpose. This also would have been an opportunity for all the peace-loving and moderate forces in Germany, together with the chiefs of the German army, to make a great effort to re-establish something like sane and civilized conditions in their own country. If the risks of war, which were run by France and Britain at the last moment, had been boldly faced in good time, and if plain declarations had been made and meant, 
how different would our prospect be today? But all these backward speculations belong to him. It is no use using hard words among friends about the past and reproaching one another for what cannot be recalled. It is the future, not the past, that demands our earnest and anxious thought. We must recognize that the parliamentary democracies and liberal peaceful forces have everywhere sustained a defeat which leaves them weaker morally and physically to cope with dangers which have vastly grown. But the cause of freedom had in it irrecuperative power and virtue which can draw from misfortune new hope and new strength. If ever there was a time when men and women who cherish the ideals of the founders of the British and American constitutions should take earnest counsel with one another, that time is now. Isn't that fascinating? Well, that's the core of the whole Kennedy book. That's yeah. that's the moment. Jack Kennedy and Munich, that's the turning point in Jack's life. But it should be remembered that his father, as ambassador to England and also a, as a reporter back to Franklin Roosevelt, about supported Munich, supported, supported Munich Chamberlain. and also advised, advised Chamberlain Absolutely. to make that deal. Not only advised Chamberlain to make the deal, but worked very hard. It was, ja it was Joe Kennedy who brought... Lindbergh, Charles Lindbergh, mm -hmm. to London in the middle of the Munich crisis to be sure that the that the British were scared enough not to 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 back down and and to to send Chamberlain off to give Hitler whatever he wanted. And what's so interesting about that speech of Churchill's at that moment is, when that speech is given, Jack is back at Harvard and he is fully in support of his father's position and Chamberlain's position on Munich and against the man who he's instinctively drawn to. Mm -hmm. And what is absolutely fascinating about Munich is that that's where you see Jack Kennedy's fundamental problem. And it's a problem that endures all the way through into the presidency, which is that he could turn on a dime when he thought that something would be to his political and career advantage. And Munich was the thing where you see that first in his thesis. And the parallel issue some 20 years later, mm -hmm. or 25 years later, as he aspires to the presidency, is what to do about the Soviet Union and the Soviet threat. Do you yield? Or do you pacify and argue that, well, it's manageable, it's okay, we can work it out with Uncle Joe? Or do you pronounce this as a great new threat to Western democracy, a threat that must be met? And that's what he proclaims. No, and you do, you do what Churchill said exactly in that speech right there, which is you negotiate from strength, but yeah. you negotiate. You and that don't leads us to the great conflict. gimmick of his presidential campaign, the accusation that a great missile gap had developed. We'll talk about those in related matters as we continue. Right now we pause for a quick update on the news as we go to Rob Hart. And we return to Barbara Leeming. As you represented in this 
fine new book, Jack Kennedy, The Education of a Statesman. Clearly, he's very close to his father. One of the reasons he's so close to his father is that his mother was so cold from the very beginning. His mother had a very difficult situation, obviously, with his father. Because the father... The father was a philanderer. Was another I mean, philanderer. Yeah. Setting the model that Jack yeah. certainly followed. imitated and followed. followed. And I think the way that Rose controlled the situation was by simply turning off her emotions. It was very interesting because I remember Debo Devonshire, who was a very good friend of Jack's all through his life, said to me that one of the things that Jack always talked to her about was the fact that Rose never kissed him, never hugged him, yeah. and he said, you know, I'm never going to let that happen to my children, and that's why you see all the pictures of him hugging and kissing John John and Caroline and so forth, but as a result, he was so deeply involved with his father, and his father was a fascinating guy. I mean, he, you know, he, he, his very powerful intellect. One of the things that I found very interesting when I went to England and talked to the people, you know, who'd known them then, was that initially people really loved Kennedy there. They all because he was a brash, unusual American, and he yeah. was smart and he was funny, and they loved. They said they never heard anybody talk that kind of slang. You know, he had all that sort of very weird Hollywood mm. slang, and they said this was not like what you usually found in the in the American embassy. Suddenly, this strange guy came in, and they just thought he was wonderful. And then they realized that he was really their enemy because, I mean, the speech you were playing of Churchill's before, Joe Kennedy's whole purpose was to keep America out. And really, literally, at within weeks of that speech of Churchill's that you played, Je Joe Kennedy made a speech in which he said, let's live with the dictators. We need to learn to live with the dictators. And Jack... Mm -hmm and I've seen the letter to his father, wrote his father a letter saying, this is a great idea. And actually what was fascinating was when Jack Kennedy came in, into the world's, the world's attention for the first time, was when he had a bestseller called Why England Slept. Mm -hmm. And that was based on his Harvard thesis. But if you go back and you read the Harvard thesis, everybody spent all of their time paying attention to whether he had a ghostwriter or he didn't have a ghostwriter. And they unfortunately failed to notice the fact that what's interesting about that is that in the thesis, it's all a defense of his father and of the policies of Munich and appeasement. And what year is that book written? That, that was written in 1941, right after he came back from, you know, from England. And then... So Jack he still changed. remains loyal to that yeah. sort of isolationist yeah. view, yeah. even as late as 41. Until I'm sorry, 40. I'm sorry, 40, excuse 40. me, 40, yeah. But he really yeah. isn't altered in that view, I suppose, no. until no. the attack on Pearl Harbor. No, he didn't. He, Jack Kennedy really was not altered in his views until really the mid-50s. What's very interesting about Jack... But he goes off to fight in the war. Yes, he goes off to fight in the war, but what's fascinating about Jack during the war, and he was a great war hero. I mean, yeah. he was a war hero. Jack had all the courage in the world, but he went off to fight in that war, and we know exactly what Jack thought because he was being taped by the FBI as it happened in the run-up to his departure to the Pacific because he was dating a woman who was suspected of being a spy. Yeah, a German spy. A German spy. And so what we know very clearly that Jack's feelings about the war were very... He wanted to have the experience, but he didn't believe in the idea of fighting and he was desperately unhappy in that period because he was beginning to realize and you can see it in his letters 
and you can hear it in his discussions with this with this Danish woman that he was involved with, he was beginning to realize that he didn't believe in anything, and he was desperate to do it. And if you're going off to war and you don't yeah. believe, but that's not a good situation. How did he reconcile that with his great adulation for Churchill and for the not only the rhetoric, but the thought of Churchill, when Churchill by then yeah. was the British Prime Minister, yep. uh, constantly pronouncing the necessity yep. of uh, this conflict and the winning, the waging and winning of this war. He believed that you had to win, but always for Jack, what's so interesting about Jack is he knew from very young who he wanted to be. He wanted to be a man like Churchill who believed. His great model actually in life was a man called Raymond Asquith, who was the son of, the, uh, of one of the British prime ministers and who was killed at the Battle of the Somme in the First World mm -hmm. War. And Jack worshipped Asquith, not because Asquith died young, which is how people usually think of it, but because Asquith was willing to die for something. And what Jack, what happened to Jack in the war period was that he realized that he might die, but he wasn't dying for anything. And he so desperately wanted to have that kind what, of feeling. What took him into politics? He waited, He's in the war. We know about the PT boat and uh, his... Uh, Heroism. He's one of many heroes, but yeah. uh, he performed well yeah. in the war. Comes back to Boston and he decides to run for Congress. Why? He decided to run for Congress because all of the boys that he knew in England were all running for Parliament. Ah. And in 1945, his sister had married Billy Hardington, the heir to the Duke of Devonshire, and Billy had been killed during the war. But Kick remained in England and became part of the Devonshire family. And she marries another and, Englishman. And, and, she, and she was about to marry another Englishman when she was killed in a plane crash. No. But she remained in England. And so Jack went back to England after for the 45 election. And when he arrived for the general election, which Churchill lost, all of the boys that he knew were all about to begin their political careers because they had to begin them early because they were going to end up in the House of Lords the minute their fathers died. So they, it's urgent. You get, you get your years in the Commons as quickly as you can. And Jack was so excited by watching them run that Kick looked at him and she said, Jack, what about you? And Jack came home and ran. And what's so curious about that first campaign, and it's typical of Jack, is when you go back and you look at the speeches that Jack is making, he's talking as if he's running for office in England because he's so caught up in the issues that, are, that he's just seen in, in that What election. are the English you know, what's themes the, in his speeches? What he's talking about, why Churchill was not being reelected and the shift to the Labour Party mm -hmm. and what's going to happen in Berlin and what's going... And it's so, it's so strange. Yeah, foreign policy speeches. Yes, 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 of course, because Jack's great interest always was foreign policy. Yeah. And he, the great tragedy of his life when he was in Congress was that he was doomed to stay in domestic policy, in which he had no interest, absolutely no interest. His interest was always foreign policy. And there's a very curious thing that I saw. I remember when, and it was one of the things that made me think that I should write this book. When Arthur Schlesinger wrote the the first big Kennedy biography right after Jack died, Jackie Kennedy- A Thousand read, Days. Yeah, A Thousand Days. Yeah. Jackie went, read through the book as an editor, and frankly, her editing notes are very good. They're really quite terrific. Mm. And one of the things that she complained to Schlesinger about was that Schlesinger said Jack didn't know anything about foreign policy, and he kept trying to push, you know, to make him look bigger, his great domestic experience. And Jackie writes a sort of nasty note in here to him, look, I think you should understand that Jack came into the presidency knowing more about foreign policy than probably any presidents there. And... 
I thought, what is this? This is very interesting because he didn't have much foreign policy experience. But that's one of the things that this book does is to show you that Kennedy was immersed in, in these great geopolitical issues from the time that he was a teenager and deeply, mm -hmm. deeply immersed in them. Of course, he gets elected to Congress. Does he serve one or two terms in the House before he runs he, for the he Senate? Went, he went, came in in 46, and in 52 he went into the Senate. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, we know that in yeah. 60 he runs for the presidency. presidency yeah. And he runs on a uh, uh, we-are-not-prepared ticket. He runs in a sort of a Churchillian mode. Yes, Harold Macmillan said, and Harold Macmillan was, was, was fascinating. Harold Macmillan was also related to Jack by marriage mm -hmm. because he was the uncle of the Duke of Devonshire's son. So it's all very, very, very much family. It's a family business. It's a bit like the Jukes and Calicarks. Yes, so. Exactly. It's a family business. And one of the things that Macmillan said when he was watching the campaign and reading Jack's collection of, 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 of speeches that was published as The Strategy of Peace, which is, again, another play on, on Churchill's sinews of peace, and the thing that he says in the Iron Curtain speech about having a strategy was that Jack was running on the Churchill ticket, and he was. Yeah. He was very, he very much did the campaign using the strategy that, Ch that Churchill had done in the 30s. We plunge forward to the 1960 uh, campaign. We're skipping his senatorial career. But one should remember, of course, that in 56, he hoped to get the vice presidential nomination. Yeah, he almost did. And he didn't get it. Yeah. Estes Kefauver got it, as I remember it. Yeah. But he decided then, I'm going to go for the presidency. And Next started running around, then. And started running. Uh, we've got some commercials that we have to take care of right now. And then we're going to hear uh, the summation of something that happened just a few blocks away from here, namely the Nixon-Kennedy debate at CBS right here in Chicago. And we're going to hear the summation of the first of those famous debates, all, as given by Kennedy. All to follow after this. And back to Barbara Leeming, who has done uh, great biographical studies of Orson Welles, Catherine Hepburn, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, and now Jack Kennedy directly. In the new book, Jack Kennedy, The Education of a Statesman, that's published by Norton. And we go to, I think this is the one that occurred right here in Chicago at CBS. Uh, this is the first of the four debates that he and Nixon did in uh, 1960. Uh, vying for the presidency. This was supposed to be about domestic issues, but I think he gets around, he, he segues it. or twists it into foreign policy. It should be remembered that basically his tactic was, just as Churchill warned about the gathering storm and Hitler, he is warning about the gathering storm and Stalin. Absolutely. Senator Kennedy, your conclusion? The point was made by Mr. Nixon that the Soviet production is only 44% of ours. I must say that 44% in that Soviet country is causing us a good deal of trouble tonight. I want to make sure that it stays in that relationship. I don't want to see the day when it's 60% of ours and 70 and 75 and 80 and 90% of ours with all the force and power that it could bring to bear in order to cause our destruction. Secondly, the Vice President mentioned medical care for the aged. Our program was an amendment to the Curb Bill. The Curb Bill provided assistance to all those who were not on Social Security. I think it's a very clear contrast. 1935, when the Social Security Act was written, 94 out of 95 Republicans voted against it. Mr. Landon ran in 1936 to repeal it. In August of 1960, when we tried to get it again, but this time for medical care, we received the support of one Republican in the Senate on this occasion. Thirdly, I think the question before the American people is, as they look at this country and as they look the world around them, the goals are the same for all Americans. The means are a question. 
the means are at issue. If you feel that everything that is being done now is satisfactory, that the relative power and prestige and strength of the United States is increasing in relation to that of the communists, that we are gaining more security, that we are achieving everything as a nation that we should achieve, that we're achieving a better life for our citizens and greater strength, then I agree. I think you should vote for Mr. Nixon. But if you feel that we have to move again in the 60s, that the function of the president is to set before the people the unfinished business of our society, as Franklin Roosevelt did in the 30s, the agenda for our people, what we must do as a society to meet our needs in this country and protect our security and help the cause of freedom. As I said at the beginning, the question before us all, that faces all Republicans and all Democrats, is can freedom in the next generation conquer or are the communists going to be successful? That's the great issue. And if we meet our responsibilities, I think freedom will conquer. If we fail, if we fail to move ahead, if we fail to develop sufficient military and economic and social strength here in this country, then I think that the, the tide could begin to run against us. And I don't want historians 10 years from now to say, these were the years when the tide ran out for the United States. I want them to say, these were the years when the tide came in. These were the years when the United States started to move again. That's the question before the American people, and only you can decide what you want, what you want this country to be, what you want to do with the future. I think we're ready to move, and it is to that great task, if we're successful, that we will address ourselves. That's pure Churchill. That's pure Churchill from the 1930s, and that's exactly how, why Jack was a superior. You know, we paid too much attention to whether the mafia was financing Kennedy's mm -hmm. campaign or what was going on. What's interesting about the way Kennedy ran in 1960 and what the Democrats could learn as a great lesson from today is, first of all, he knew that opposition was fun and that opposition was what a, a political campaign is all about. But he also took... Mm -hmm a complete intellectual construct and applied it, it's systematic. It, it's, he simply took what Churchill had done in criticizing the lack of preparedness in Britain in the 30s and applied it to the Eisenhower years. Mm -hmm. And what's very curious in there, I mean, one of the things that's fascinating, once you know the, the code of Kennedy, is that you can, he's so transparent. I heard in here when he said this, that suddenly he starts talking about 1935. The reason he's talking about 1935 is, 1935 and the election that took place in Great Britain that year with Stanley Baldwin became a kind of centerpiece of, of the American presidential campaign. I don't think any of the Americans had any idea what Jack was talking about because suddenly, in speech after speech after speech, he'd start talking about Stanley Baldwin and the 1935 election campaign in Great Britain and Nixon, you're just like Stanley Baldwin. And if you do, and people would sort of look at him blankly, what was mm -hmm. going on? Who is this Stanley Baldwin and why is he so preoccupied uh -huh. with him? But what he was talking about was that a real leader unlike Baldwin, would do what Churchill had done, which would be to risk everything to say, to tell the truth about the situation, rather than worrying, as Baldwin did, about what would get him reelected and saying, well, I have to do this in order to get myself in, keep myself in office. And what's fascinating about, I, I call it the Baldwin problem, and Jack, Jack was obsessed with Stanley Baldwin, and this 1935 thing suddenly coming up it's a it's the most curious thing with jack kennedy because he, he, he has a very limited 
frame of things that interest him, but he, he thinks about them in such depth and goes over and over and over them. I mean, when you look at the Churchill speeches, it, the references to the speech about the Rhineland are endless. In here, he's coming very close again to talking about the years that the locusts the locusts have eaten, mm. which is a very famous Churchill speech about the wasted time, and that's the subtext for all of what he's saying in here. This is supposed to be a debate about domestic policy. What was brilliant about Jack Kennedy in here is that he turned it to what he knew immediately and threw Nixon completely off. It was fascinating because Harold McMillan actually happened to be in New York for the UN watching this and had never seen Kennedy in action and watched it on television and then went up to talk to Eisenhower and had said to Eisenhower, your guys beat after he saw him and the thing because what you you hear this with Kennedy, mm -hmm. he has tremendous sense of command. Of course, Barbara, we should remember, he, uh, McMillan may have said your guys beat, but there still remains a question as to whether Kennedy really won that election. Yes, it was certainly close. There was, a, there was some real fakery, apparently, it, well, oh, yeah. in a number of states, yeah. including in Illinois, including yeah. indeed in yeah. the city of Chicago. It was certainly close at the very least. And one of the things that I think put a lot of pressure on Jack, one of the things that was fascinating was to watch him in the first months after he became mm. president. Because I think one of the things that unsettled him tremendously, it's obvious, was how narrow the, the, the win was. Then, yeah. And then when, when everybody went wild for him and the polls were up like this, it's much easier to talk about doing what he's talking about in here, which is risking everything to lead the people. Remember, he's coming into an America where the people were, and he talks about that endlessly in, in, in it, to David Gore during the, during the presidency, that how out of sync with the American people he was. Now, don't we have to really, at the same time, acknowledge that he was telling, um, he was exaggerating, if not lying, when in all of his uh, accusations about the missile gap, oh, yeah. that the Soviets had the lead on us, they had more missiles and more nuclear warheads to throw at us that we had to throw at them. That was his great accusation. Yeah. Whereas, in fact, the real intelligence data indicated the situation was the opposite, and he knew of that intelligence I'm data. not so sure that he completely knew about it, but the missile gap thing was obviously proved completely false. But it's the overall thing that the it's everything that he was saying was designed to show what he was worried about was that America was not very appealing to the rest of the world at that point. And he felt that we were engaged in a tremendous competition for the hearts and minds of, 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 of the world with the communists. But before that, he felt that, we were, that he was engaged in a yeah. struggle for the hearts and minds and the votes and of the ordinary votes. Americans. And the votes, yeah. And that uh, the, the Democrats had been yeah. generally characterized as weak on Absolutely. defense. Absolutely. Uh, he was going to reverse that uh, image. And that was and brilliant. And accuse the Republicans of being weak on defense. And he did. And he did it better than anybody. And he did it successfully. Absolutely brilliant. And his main target was not Nixon, but was Eisenhower. Was Eisenhower, yes. Oh, yes. And Eisenhower hated him. Eisenhower hated him for everything that he said in that campaign. And what was fascinating afterwards was that Jack, I mean, Jack yeah. knew how angry Eisenhower was, and he was terrified of Eisenhower, always, all the way through the whole presidency. The, the great fear repeated endlessly was, will Eisenhower come out and accuse me Mm -hmm. Always the accusation that Jack is always afraid of is the accusation of being an appeaser, always. We are due for a uh, stop for a newscast, 
And a little bit later on, we'll be going to the phones, but I might now invite telephone calls, the number 591-7200. If you don't mind waiting a few minutes, you can get your call in right now with any question or a thought you want to share. 591-7200. And we go to the newsroom, indeed, and for a full update on what's been happening, to Paula Cooper. I could not do my job properly without reminding you, or rather getting you to talk about something you're very familiar with, indeed, your last book, the one ostensibly or basically a biography of Jacqueline Kennedy, uh, really deals with this a great deal, namely the other and seamier side of the life of John F. Kennedy. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, there's no way of dealing with Kennedy without coming to, to terms with the fact that there is a part of Jack Kennedy. I mean, all of the stories about the women, all of the stories about the drugs, they're all true. I mean, they happened. But what to me was tremendously interesting was that the two things could could coexist in a single human being. And fundamentally, what I felt in here is that I wish that this is where we had all started. I think if we had known Jack as closely as we know him, I mean, one of the reasons that I know him in a way that nobody else has known him is, first of all, I had the tremendous luxury of knowing people who knew him most intimately from the time that he was a teenager mm -hmm. all the way through his life, but also because when I went to England, I saw, which no Kennedy biographer has seen, the British papers, and in the British archives exists something that's unbelievable. Arthur Schlesinger said years ago that probably the place where Jack worked out his ideas most fully and most frankly was in the conversations that he had with David Ormsby Gore. And in fact, for 25 years, that was what Jack was doing. What exists and what I found in the archives are David's records of those conversations. Everybody's been sort of longing to know what was Jack really thinking, because if you hear the transcripts of tapes and so forth of him, you see Jack doesn't speak in, in most meetings. He'll ask a question or he'll say yes or no, but he says very little. When he's with David, it's a back and forth. There's a wonderful picture in the book of the two of them going nose to nose. David wrote down all of what was said in those things. And when I read those, I mean, I remember sitting in London and saying to myself, oh, my God, I can't believe this. He would report back to Macmillan what Jack had said, now, what, what were the, he was what thinking. What were the views of Ormsby Gore? Ormsby Gore was, and that's why I, I led into it from that, Ormsby Gore was about as different morally yeah. from Jack Kennedy as you could possibly have. A straight this, arrow. Yes, absolute straight arrow, absolutely believed in duty and honor and all of these things, was horrified at what Jack's behavior was in his marriage and all of that. But David believed mm. that with Jack, he could achieve the things that he believed in and that Jack basically believed in. And he said, nobody is perfect. And no, I don't approve of those things, but there is so much that's good in Jack. And that's what I focus on. And what was fascinating was that between the two of them, because you wonder where Kennedy came from. Well, Kennedy was running for office all during the 50s. David Ormsby Gore, however, was negotiating with the Russians, was doing all of the disarmament policy for the British. All of the experience which Kennedy didn't have, David gave him, presented to him on a platter. And that's the secret to yeah. Kennedy. So Ormsby Gore was a very strong influence. Oh, absolutely. Kennedy. He's the most important partner. Except possibly for Churchill. 
Yes, as you've said. Churchill, Churchill's an intellectual influence, too. Just, and we want to go yeah, back to yeah. Churchill. Yeah. Uh, we, we heard Kennedy campaigning yeah. for the presidency, 1960. But it makes sense, because there he's sounding the theme of the Cold War and renewing the Cold War. It makes sense for us to go back some 14 years from then to 1946, to a crucial moment mm -hmm. in the uh, development of the Cold War, or the very naming of the Cold War. That is... Uh, Churchill's speech in Fulton, Missouri, at the little college down there that Truman got him to come to. This is in um, uh, March 5th, 1946, the Iron Curtain speech. And here it is. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an Iron Curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line, by all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe. Warsaw, Berlin, Prague, Vienna, Budapest, Belgrade, Bucharest, and Sofia. All these famous cities and the populations around them lie in what I must call the Soviet sphere. And all our subjects, in one form or another, not only to Soviet influence, but to a very high and in some cases increasing measure of control from, uh, from Moscow. Police governments are prevailing uh, from Moscow. Yet Athens alone, Greece, with its immortal glories, is free to decide its future at an election under British, American, and French observation. The, the Russian-dominated Polish government has been encouraged to make enormous and wrongful inroads upon Germany, and mass expulsions of millions of Germans on a scale grievous and undreamed of are now taking place. The, the communist parties, which were very small in all these eastern states of Europe, have been raised to preeminence and power far beyond their numbers and are seeking everywhere to obtain totalitarian control. Police governments are prevailing in nearly every case and so far, except in Czechoslovakia, there is no true democracy. There you are, he's sounding the call. What's fascinating about that, that speech is that that is the... the when we think about the Iron Curtain speech, what's happened is that we only think about half of it. We only think about the call to rearming. But if you actually read the entire speech, what Churchill is proposing there is a double-barreled strategy, as mm -hmm. he put it. And that's the policy that Kennedy adopted, which is it's never designed to go to confrontation. It's always that you're rearming so that you can negotiate and negotiate from strength. And this is the beginning. Churchill's of, great phrase for that was, we arm to parley. We arm to parley, which Kennedy loved as a phrase. And jaw, jaw is better than war, war. War, war. Yeah. But one of the things that's fascinating about Kennedy is that he adopted, essentially, when he came into the presidency, he tried to put mm. into practice Churchill's strategy for defeating the communists without a war. And it's a very simple strategy, but it's one that most Americans don't know or have forgotten. And that strategy was basically that 
you penetrate the Iron Curtain, you infiltrate the Iron Curtain, you get as much contact with them as you possibly can. That's why Kennedy, from the moment that he went into the White House, wanted to make some first agreement with the Soviets because Churchill had taught him that you can only rule in that kind of an Iron Curtain society if it remains closed. The minute it begins to open up, it begins to fall. And Jack's policy was the policy of contact and infiltration. To and the first uh, negotiation um, and the first thing he hoped to achieve was, which was achieved, was the test ban treaty. Was the test ban. The test ban, the story of the test ban is, it's like writing a thriller. I mean, it, because Jack went into the presidency because David had been negotiating. David Ormsby-Gor had been in Geneva negotiating the test ban for the British. And he believed that they were about to sign, that they were about to allow finally verification. So Jack went into the presidency thinking that within two months of, of taking office, they were going to have this first agreement with the, with the Soviets and they would be on the road to detente. It didn't work out that way when the, the, the Soviets changed the policy and Jack was devastated. And out of that came all of the mess with the Bay of Pigs and with Laos and all of that and the mess at Vienna because the presidency didn't start in the way that he wanted it to. But all the way through the presidency, it's that drive to the test ban and will he, it's not so much will he get it, it's will he have the courage to go for it. And the last, I mean, the last chapter of the book is, I mean, I, I sat there thinking to myself, is he going to do it? What is he going to do? I knew he was going to do it because I know how history came out. But I also knew that he was going to die. And mm -hmm. that makes the whole, the whole thing. This is when, I mean, I've just been talking about the book a lot in England. I was t saying that to you earlier. And one of the things that people are talking to me about in England is what happened with the test ban and Harold Macmillan's influence as opposed to Tony Blair's influence with George Bush. The test ban would never have happened. Jack Kennedy would have died without having gone forward with it if Harold Macmillan had not come in after the Cuban Missile Crisis and said, I don't care if I make a fool of myself. I don't care if you never want to hear from me again. I'm going to push you and push you and push you and push you. This is our last chance. We can't lose this. And between David Ormsby Gore and Macmillan, they twisted and turned and I'm not going to ruin the story by telling you how they did it but they did it and it's 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 a fascinating thing because it's the high point of British influence over an American over American foreign policy once they got the test ban idea uh, essentially approved by the Soviets Harriman in Moscow I think yes is doing the final negotiations. What did the negotiations yes but then it needs Senate approval yes and at that time I was as a very young assistant professor at Yale University, I was also a member of the Committee for a Sane Nuclear Policy, which was a major yes. so-called yes. peace organization pressing for the test ban. Yes. And we got a communication from somebody in the White House, which was relayed on to me. I was active in a local group, uh, but really quite active, that uh, the White House was asking sane probably asking lots of other organizations, demand more of us, keep the clamor going to whip up enthusiasm for uh, Senate confirmation. 
Absolutely, because I mean, I that that doesn't surprise me at all. Because Jack was terrified until the day that that got ratified. Yeah. He was afraid that it wasn't going to, to that it was it wasn't going to be ratified. One can and, remember yeah. Wilson coming back with the League of Nations and the Senate Absolutely. knocking that's, down and our participation in the League of Nations. He was he was terrified yeah. that that would happen again. And that's where the the that's the climax of the yeah. education of Jack Kennedy. That is the moment when Jack finally chooses to risk everything he knew that potentially if this went wrong his whole career was over his place in history was gone everything what are the dates on that that's in july of 63 when he yeah. when he when it's really literally right before and it's not ratified until september yeah. and so you're literally going he's killed in november so it's it's he barely he barely made it but what's what's <laughs> what's beautiful about it is that he did win the place in history he did become or started to become the something man we've not be. dealt with directly and it comes the year before is the cuban missile crisis yeah. Which has a great deal to do once that, that crisis is played through at a level of high risk. Yeah. But once it is played through, then the Soviets are ready to do some negotiation. Are ready to do some negotiation. Uh, my view of the Cuban Missile Crisis is entirely different from what most people have thought of the Cuban Missile Crisis. First of all, because of what Jack was doing in the run-up to the Missile Crisis and the and the reasons mm -hmm. why. Khrushchev was playing him the way that he was. Jack had made it all too clear to Khrushchev that he was terrified politically, and Khrushchev was playing with that. Khrushchev knew that he wanted to negotiate a settlement on Berlin, which is what the whole thing was about, but he believed that he was too politically scared to do it, and so what he was trying to do was to force him literally to the brink. And then he thought he'll do what I want him to do mm -hmm. rather than do it. But the Cuban Missile Crisis, instead of people think that the Cuban Missile Crisis made it easy for Jack to do the test ban, it made it almost impossible for him to do the test ban because the last thing the American people wanted after the Cuban Missile Crisis was an agreement with the Soviets. They're liars. They, they mm -hmm. stick missiles in. What do they want? And there, there's an incredible conversation that David describes to Macmillan after it's happened at the White House, and Jack is saying to him, you know, I just can't do this. If I do this, Rockefeller will be elected in 64 if mm -hmm. I go forward with this. That's exactly the argument that Stanley Baldwin gave in, in 1935. I mean, that's why all of this stuff, it's this, it's, you, you can't understand any of the presidency if you mm -hmm. haven't started at the beginning of this story. I love to play the game of counterfactuals. Change history a little bit. Um, and yeah. how would things have played out? And so, the obvious question to ask in that regard is Lee Harvey Oswald, if that's who did it, yeah. was up there in the Texas Book Depository. He shoots, but he misses. Yeah. And what John Kennedy, yeah. they rush the, the car forward, and the S Secret Service protects Kennedy, and he's still alive and still president on that date, November 22nd, 1963. How would history have been different do you think oh i think it would have i mean one never knows but i think it would have been dramatically different because at that moment jack had just gotten what he called what in in the inauguration he said we must find a beginning the beginning was the beginning of the oh, defeat mm. of the soviet union by this policy of contact and agreement and infiltration. He had just gotten finally what he'd been working for for the whole presidency to get. He was wanted negotiations on on, on Vietnam. He was never going to move forward with Vietnam that. Vietnam is a crucial question yeah. right there. Years ago, when I first started doing this program, probably in the first year or two that I was doing it, there came Kenny O'Donnell and Dave Powers, who were both 
yeah. close associates yeah. and assistants to Kennedy, and they did a book, yeah. Johnny, We Hardly Knew You. And Kenny O'Donnell was arguing two things. One, uh, Judith Campbell Exner never was in the White House. <laughs> I would know, Milt, because I guarded the door. Uh, that Doesn't was make not, him too credible, does That it? was not true. <laughs> but the other was, um, if he had lived, he would have wound down our very uh, still a slender involvement in Vietnam. We would not have gone forward, as Lyndon Johnson did take us forward, into escalation in Vietnam. To the contrary, they would have seen that as somehow counterproductive, and he would have closed it out right after his re-election in 1964, said I, Kenny O'Donnell. There, I think Kenny O'Donnell probably, but we don't know. We don't know. I mean, Vietnam yeah. got out of control. Well, O'Donnell said that was his intention. Yeah, I think it was his intention. I think it was his clear intention. I think his intention never was to get involved in it. I think he got distracted. I I think he was being pushed by people like Walt Rostow and mm. other people in, the, in his government to do things that he never wanted to do. And his eye was so firmly on the ball in Berlin that he wasn't watching that carefully enough. At the moment when the really bad mm. decisions were made on Vietnam in the fall, really in the fall of 61, when he was making very bad decisions on it. And the reason why he was making them was that he was intent at that point on trying to get an agreement on Berlin. He was terrified that something was going to happen in Berlin. The boy who had read at 15 about how wars begin in the world crisis with Winston Churchill had mm learned that you don't want to get to the precipice. That's where wars happen. The Cold War was played through with all the, our living with the Damoclean threat of nuclear war. Yeah. Uh, all uh, was played through all the way up to essentially 1989, 1990, yeah. with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Is it conceivable to you, following that course of alternative yeah. history, that if Kennedy had not been assassinated, the Cold War would have gone to its consummation or to its resolution sooner than that? I think it might very possibly. I mean, I can only speak from my own experience, but I certainly believe that the policy of, of contact and infiltration worked. I saw it for myself. I spent a lot of time in Eastern Europe, and I saw what uh, most of the time I was there for film festivals and things like that, and I saw the damage that was done by showing American films, by opening the opening the eyes and the ears to people once that had happened there was nothing you could do i remember i remember actually always for me it, the, it, it one of the strangest events was watching annie hall in belgrade in yugoslavia mm. and watching the next day everybody appeared on the streets of belgrade looking like annie hall it was as if new york was suddenly there you can't keep it closed you know it's it it's 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 insidious. I mean, Churchill was right on that. And I think if Kennedy had lived, I mean, he, remember he was doing the wheat deal just before he died. Mm -hmm. He was very much involved in having exchanges with professors and students and all of that. He he would have done more and more of that. And who knows what would have happened with Khrushchev and if, if Kennedy had kept mm -hmm. going. It's it, But it's a lot of ifs. We don't know. Yeah, we don't well. know. But I, he's had, I think, you have to give him credit for the beginning of the end of the Cold War. Him, Harold McMillan, David Ormsby Gore. I think they get it as a trio. And we have to pause for some overdue commercials. And right after that, we are going to the phones. Uh, the lines are open. Uh, some lines are taken, in fact, but others are now available again. If you've been trying to reach us, you should try again very quickly. 5917200 is the number. 591 7200. And for those who are listening over the internet at some greater distance, whether on either coast or in another country, if you want to reach us, the easiest way, of course, is via 
email the email address extension720 at tribune.com. Extension 720, as one word, at tribune, T-R-I-B-U-N-E dot com, or by phone 591-7200, onto your contributions directly after this. Our guest tonight is an old and treasured friend, Barbara Leeming, one of the most distinguished biographers in the country. Uh, her newest work is Jack Kennedy, The Education of a Statesman, and that is published by Norton. Uh, who published in, in uh, the U.K.? Weidenfeld and Nicholson. Mm -hmm. Good for him. Yeah, it's, it's called, actually, there it's called The Making of a President. They insisted uh, on a different title. 591-7200 uh, <laughs> is our number, and uh, one line is available still at this moment. If you want to reach us, move quickly. If you hit the busy signal, however, the proper strategy is to call again right after we say goodnight to a prior caller. 591-7200 for email, extension 720 at tribune.com. And let's go to the first caller. Hello, you're on the air. Yes, uh, I'm 69 years old, and uh, in the spring of 1960, I was a student at uh, the University of Wisconsin Law School. Uh, Senator Kennedy uh, came to Madison, and he spoke at Music Hall. Uh, David Feldman, a political science professor, introduced Kennedy and predicted he would get the Democratic nomination in July of that year and that he would go on to beat Nixon. Uh, Kennedy's me message that evening was the missile gap. Kennedy got the nomination in July, and then he came to Madison in September of 60 and spoke at Camp Randall, 15,000 people there, and his theme then was to get America moving again. I got out of law school in 1961, and when Khrushchev <clears throat> put up the Berlin Wall in 61, I got drafted. I was almost 26 years old. Uh, I was assigned to the 1st Armored Division, and we were airlifted from Fort Hood, Texas, to uh, Fort Stewart, Georgia, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and in November of 62 after the crisis was over uh... kennedy came down the east coast and he he spoke to our division the first armored division that we were then at fort stewart georgia and he gave one of the strongest cold warrior speeches i'd ever heard he thanked us for what we had done and 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 said that he would be calling on us again and we were lifted back to fort hood texas i've never been convinced that uh, senator kennedy would not have put in more troops in Vietnam, and that once having put in more troops, that he would have pulled out. I think, I think that he was he he would not have uh, wanted to give the appearance of losing Asia to the communists. Now, sir, that's an interesting point, and I know you want to know whether Barbara agrees or disagrees. Yeah. I must ask you to hold for 90 mm -hmm. seconds while we go to the newsroom for a quick update from Paula Cooper, okay. and we'll return to you and to Barbara. Yes, sir. And back to Barbara Leaving. So our caller, in essence, is saying that he disagrees. That uh, with what you were suggesting, or and for that matter, what Kenny O'Donnell said so many years ago, that if he had lived, he would not have pulled us out of Vietnam, but would have intensified. I think that the caller said something that's absolutely correct, which is that Kennedy mm -hmm. was terrified of being the one to lose Asia to the to the communists. That he was terrified of, and I think that's why he made some of the fundamental mistakes that he was making in the buildup that was going on while he was president. I think, though, that ultimately one of the reasons that he had Harriman putting out feelers to try and get a negotiated settlement mm -hmm. in Vietnam was that Kennedy's policies were so 
opposed to that kind of to any kind of military confrontation. He was terrified of something escalating into a nuclear mm -hmm. war, and I think ultimately that that fear would have prevailed. And his absolute obsession that it was his role in history to turn the tide towards détente. That was what he was that was his aim and so i think ultimately that would have whether he could have controlled events i don't know no one can know i i mean we can't know and i mean vietnam certainly by the time that kennedy died had become tremendously complicated because of the assassination of dm and all of those things mm -hmm. so whether he would have lost control of it we don't know that was exactly the kind of situation he didn't want to be in well, I, I can tell you that uh, uh, he was preparing to fight in Southeast Asia because when I was stationed at Fort Hood, Texas, Special Forces were training there. Yeah. And, of course, he was assassinated in 63. That was long before the later big buildup under Johnson yeah. and long before Kennedy would have had a chance to build up. But I can't, I don't believe that Khrushchev had, having put up the wall in, in 61, mm -hmm. that Kennedy would have uh, uh, backed down in Asia. I think he would have built up now. If he had lived uh, uh, to serve out second term, and if we if we'd gotten more deeply embroiled, maybe he would have pulled out. I I just don't I, think he would so. have. I think he what he would have tried to do. I mean, I know what he was trying to do. He was trying to go for a negotiated settlement. Whether he could have gotten it or not, I don't know. We don't know. We'll never know. Another interesting uh, event along that route. I think it's in June or July of the mm -hmm. year in which he was assassinated. Mm -hmm was the American University speech. Yeah, the American University speech was a huge thing because in that speech, he said to the American people, I know you don't agree with me. I know that you don't want this policy of, of contact and you don't want negotiations with the Russians, but we have to have that. And he really became a president who was trying to educate and trying mm -hmm. to lead, which is what he had always wanted to And looking to be. forward to yeah. conciliation with the Soviet with conciliation, Union. Because the lesson that he had learned, I mean, there, there's a, there, in, 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 in the presidency, there's a very, from the moment actually that, that he and Macmillan start to really talk to each other, which is in December of 61, Macmillan and, De and Jack are constantly talking about the role of the leader in in history and the need in this situation where there is a nuclear bomb on both sides to get to detente you have to turn away from confrontation our thanks to the caller and we will be directly back to the phones five nine one seven two double zero after these messages and directly back to the phones here is the next caller good evening are you there hello yes sir Milt, uh, excellent show, long-time listener. I'll get right to the point. I know time is of the essence. Uh, the, the author's uh, thesis about Kennedy uh, being a, uh, a person who wanted to engage in, in uh, discussion uh, with, with the uh, communist world kind of flies in the face. I, I, I've always viewed Kennedy, and I have uh, a couple degrees in history, as a uh, closet uh, Dulles uh, containment, uh, I look at the the rush into uh, stopping the communists at the Bay of Pigs. We have the containment issue with the Cuban Missile Crisis. We're going to contain the communists in Southeast Asia. We're going to contain the communists at the uh, Berlin Wall. We're not going to give down. Uh, we're going to stand firm and everything like that. That's classic Dulles strategies of the 1950s. And and well, Dulles uh, is great. Dulles's great phrase was, our intention is to roll back the Iron Curtain. Yeah, but Kennedy was very, very, very different 
from from Dulles. And I think one of the things that was so interesting in doing this is that we've had very, very little access to what Kennedy himself was thinking, saying, and doing in private. And the proof of the pudding is the test ban treaty. I mean, on uh, you know, it, 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 Dulles would not have signed the test ban treaty with the with the Soviets and the test ban treaty is an enormous thing it's not important just because of what it did in terms of of, of testing of course it does have to be remembered doesn't it and you make this very yeah. clear in the book yeah. that the intention wasn't merely to get conciliation and peace no. With the Soviet to defeat it, them. It was also to defeat the Soviet yes. Union, to end communism in yeah. the Soviet Union. And that's, I think, that, and that you, you say was Churchill's yes, plan that, enunciated yeah. early in the post in, in the post war, war period. Years. And I think that that's essential because one of the things that Kennedy was having so much trouble explaining to the American people was that he was not appeasing the Russians. He was trying to defeat them. And that the way to defeat them was not to run away from them, but to, to get as close to them as you possibly could. No, you're not going to betray your commitments. I mean, Kennedy made it very, very clear that he would have gone to war over Berlin if the, if the Soviets had moved and tried to forces out. Here's a uh, comment or question uh, via email which deals with the other side of Kennedy uh, and maybe of the whole Kennedy family. Uh, Milt, he says, with your background, perhaps you could explain the Kennedy phenomenon. No, it's up to you, Barbara, to explain <laughs> it. He goes on to say, this family of sleazy characters just won't go away. What could account for this? Is there a national longing for something resembling a royal family or do we just love a good soap opera? Shakespeare might have been onto something when he said the sins of the father are to be laid upon the children. I think that what I came away from this book thinking is that we have to separate Jack from all of the others that came after, including Bobby. I mean, Bobby is a very, very different character from Jack. He was trying to make himself into Jack. But, I mean, Bobby was not a reader, Bobby was not a thinker, Bobby was not an ideas man, as somebody said. And Jack Kennedy had an enormous amount of substance to him. Yes, he was a charismatic figure. He was like a movie star. And one of the reasons why the British were as eager to work with him was that he had the capacity to pull people to his side. He had a tremendous kind of charisma, but he also had much, much more substance than he's been given credit for. And his ideals, yes, he did sleazy, horrible, terrible, stupid things, but his <clears throat> goals as president were admirable. The, uh, the email I just read refers mm -hmm. to the family. Mm -hmm. In fact, that seems yeah. in many ways a doom in families. An awful lot oh. of sleaziness, an awful lot of self-indulgence, an awful lot of pathology visible uh, not only in Kennedy's gen Jack Kennedy's generation, but in the generation of the children. Absolutely, I think you know. I think it's 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 a family that's been haunted by tragedy. Mm -hmm. I mean, just in the in the in the pivotal period in in my book in the 30s and 40s, I mean, Jack's older brother, who was supposed to be the Kennedy star and who who was far inferior to Jack, but he was killed during the war. Kick was killed at the age of 28 in an airplane crash. The uh, Joe's uh, Jack's other sister 
rosemary had a lobotomy yeah. i mean you know it's it's a family a that's cruel thing horrible imposed by the father imposed by the father without even consulting the mother i yeah. mean he certainly did not intend to do anything to harm his daughter i mean one thing his the father would never have done but, but then it, but it's a disaster. addiction and uh, drugs and yeah drugs, drugs and yeah. early tragedy on the yeah. part of many in the yeah. the next generation yeah. including a son of senator kennedy Teddy, yeah only yeah. uh just recently a month ago i think what i think what we all it goes back to what the other caller was saying and what we you and i were talking about it's what might have been i mm-hmm. mean there's somehow this 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 draw because there you know there's te- there are television images of kennedy endless ones he'll always be young we always will see him so it's always the what might it's unfinished what might have been and somehow or other that's been inherited by the family and very often inherited by people who have absolutely nothing to do with it i mean you know and it's a tremendous burden as well as as well as as you know, great gift, obviously. But it's I mean, it's a, no family has had more tragedy than that than that family has. And Jack himself, I mean, in his 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 own life was a very difficult life. One of the very sweet things that Jackie said, and the letters that Jackie wrote to people after Jack's death are just heartbreaking. And one of the things that she said to I think it was to Joe Alsop. I'm sure it was to Joe Alsop. Was that you don't you know you, other people don't see the tragedy in Jack. And and there was there was a kind of sadness in him always. And another reason why the emotions were as contained as they were because he he he'd seen a lot of, of, of very bad things in his life and certainly since then i mean all of them have they're larger than life as a family oh, they certainly they, are. they're more of them <laughs> but they, they seem as somehow yeah they seem somehow profoundly uh, and tragically flawed oh there there's there's no question about it there's something down to this down, down to, to the present, time. to the present, yeah. to the present generation. It's a very, I mean, it's it's both, it, and probably there is something to wanting you know, a royal family or something. It's 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 ours. They were it, the period of the Kennedy presidency was a tremendously glamorous period. America was very excited about the way things looked and yeah. so forth. And Jack used that brilliantly. I can't resist asking you. Yeah. This is this goes back to your yeah. previous book. You've done yeah. a biography of Jacqueline yeah. Kennedy yeah. through. Uh, these times and yeah. beyond, yeah. through the Onassis marriage and beyond that, to the end of her life, uh, and she comes through as an exceptionally odd character, don't you think? She was an extremely odd character, Jackie. But I think that it was very easy to Not see. Not simply what... the heroine of Camelot. No, no, no. What, but I think one of the things that brought Jack and Jackie together. I think that's very easy to read. I think that the image that we all have of, uh, you know, th- that's been promoted that Jack Kennedy suddenly was introduced to the world of, of glamour and, and, and riches and, and sophistication by Jackie Kennedy is a joke. I mean, Jack Kennedy lived that life long and in much higher circles than Jackie Kennedy his whole life. But what drew them together was that they were both people who were created by their reading. They were both sad, lonely children who lived in books and who were both obsessed with history, Jackie with French history, Jack with British history. And they were they were readers and people who talked about things like that. I mean, what Jack liked to talk about were the books that he was reading. What Jackie liked to talk about was that she could also talk about very vacant things, and Jack mm-hmm. was not terribly interested in those things. But there was a connection between them, and it was a very profound connection. There's a reason why she stayed with him 
people that she, I mean, she certainly threatened to leave him a zillion times, but there was something, there was something real between them. And one of the things that I think was very sad in, 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 in her story was at the very end of, of, of Jack's life, because so many things were happening to him in terms of his political choices, in terms of his becoming the man he wanted to be in history, he, I think, was also beginning to become dissatisfied with himself personally. Yeah. A little. Fascinating people. Well worth the attention you've given them. Uh, and here are some messages that may well be worth your attention. And directly back to the phones. You are on the air. Good evening. Good evening. Um, I was just wondering, I, my son has a T-shirt that on the back of it, it has a, the Kennedy sentence that uh, let any nation know whether they wish us good or ill. Uh, we will back any friend, oppose any foe, uh, da -dum -da -dum, in the defense mm -hmm. of liberty. I think that's one of the first presidents to suggest something like that, think internationally. And I think, in fact, that's why we're in Iraq today. I think it's why we would have stuck it out in Vietnam. And I think it's below the surface as a reason why we're in Iraq, because it's a way of saying uh, we want to do the right thing as a country. And, uh, and you know, we think that we're in Iraq to, to make us safer, and, and we haven't had any terrorism attacks. But I think it's also because this country wants to do the right thing. Um, could you address that? Yeah, I think I'm not sure that that's what Kennedy meant by that sentence. I think that, you know, he was the son of, an, of one of the most famous isolationists of all times. He certainly was not an isolationist and he believed that we must, you know, that we must be engaged with the rest of the world. But I think that what he meant by that sentence was, and that's the outcome of something we were talking about earlier in the evening, Munich, he believed that the world had to understand that we would honor whatever commitments we had made to them. And he felt that one of the great lessons of Munich was that when the, the British and the French betrayed the Czechs, their word was good for nothing after that. And he never wanted that to happen with the United States and specifically with, with Berlin. But what's very curious to me now, because one of the things that I'm hearing in, in England whenever I'm talking to people is that they're, they're saying to me over and over and over again that they wish that, that Tony Blair was behaving in the way that Harold Macmillan behaved with Kennedy in uh, leading George Bush rather than following George Bush and what you know what we don't know what to, what Tony Blair has actually done or not but certainly one of the things that the, that the British mean by that is that 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 Harold Macmillan was willing to do whatever it took and and and, and at his own expense to make sure that Kennedy did the right thing as he understood it and 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 it was you know it was a remarkable remarkable political partnership and the world certainly benefited from it and it would you know it would be nice if if Blair had been able to do the same thing with Bush well I think if President Bush is is uh, looked at favorably in history I think it will be for that reason it will be doing the right thing well I, I suspect we, you and I may disagree on that right and right. we thank you sir for the call and quickly to another time being rather short, you are next on the air. Good evening. Hello. Yes, sir. Yes, uh, I have a question for you, author. Um, did you interview uh, Ted Kennedy and ask him uh, for your book if uh, President Kennedy shared any of his Cold War strategy and knowledge with him? Now, uh, Teddy was a little boy for the part of my book that was that was important, and by the time that I, he got to the presidency, this this book really emphasizes the British influence on it, mm -hmm. so that Teddy would not have been very much of a of, of a source for this. My 
major sources on this were the British people who have not been interviewed and who knew Jack from the time that that he you know that he was a young boy. Teddy was only six years old at that at that point. Who were they? Um, you've named one or two of them. Yeah. Who were the, others? Well, the the Gores or the whole Gore family. Gene Lloyd, who was a, a Kick's closest friend. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lord Holderness, who was absolutely invaluable. He was Lord Halifax's son, and he, at the time he was called Richard Wood, and he was absolutely wonderful because not only had he been with Jack in 1945 at the San Francisco com conference, because he was accompanying Lord Halifax, who was there at the time, and had very, very interesting and really pivotal discussions at a moment when Jack is about to to move into the political arena, but also because he was Kick's major confidant, he knew an enormous, enormous amount about that relationship and about what Jack was thinking. I mean, I, I guess I basically interviewed everybody who was still alive, who remembered the who who remembered them then and what was astonishing was that i i mean I, I remember at one point i was reading some letters of jackson i just couldn't interpret them i didn't know what they were and i had the great luxury of saying to the to the duke of devonshire look what is he talking about i don't know it was something he was talking about to 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 the duke's brother i said i don't know what these references are to and I had the luxury of Andrew sitting there saying, well, this means that, and he's referring to the Somme here, and why he, this is what he's thinking about with Munich, and he saw it as, as, as Munich as fear, and, and, and we saw it as shame, and, and I mean, it was just, it was, I had an enormous, enormous luxury in having that, but then in addition to that, I think the, the, the voice of David is just, is matchless, because to have thousands of pages of documents where somebody is telling you what Jack is saying in private, what his private fears are, the kinds of things that he would never say aloud to anybody, and not just somebody who was meeting him. Because one of the problems that Jack had when he became president, remember, is he appointed a lot of people he'd never met before. He didn't know very many people in his cabinet. And he talked a lot about that to David. I don't know who to trust. That's one of the reasons there were so many messes in the beginning. I don't know whose advice to take. I don't know these people. And the luxury of having somebody that he'd been discussing these issues with for 25 years was huge. And to have that written down. Where's, where's Ormsby Gore today? Ormsby Gore's dead. Ormsby Gore, he, he was killed in a car crash. Very, his whole family, the, the Kennedys die with hmm. drugs. The, car, the Ormsby Gores die in car crashes. He was a reckless driver, and he died not long after his wife was also killed in a car crash. It's these people. I think for David, once the Kennedy presidency was over, he said it was the happiest. They were the happiest years of his life. I can't resist this. Very quickly, we're almost um, almost out of time. Um, Two great charismatic men uh, are in your repertoire, Orson Welles and Jack Kennedy. Did they ever meet? No, they never met, and Orson hated Jack Kennedy. Why did he hate him? <laughs> he just couldn't stand him. I mean, he said, those Kennedys, I can't stand any of Hated Joe Kennedy, I think. You were very close to Orson. Yes, I adored Orson. I loved Orson passionately. Yeah. He was the greatest figure in my life. Everything that I know about biography, Orson taught me. You just told me during a, a quick break, the last break, that when we first did a program on your uh, when I first met you, your book about Orson Welles, Orson called you from California that night. Yes, I came back to from ask the, you how the program. I had came gone. back from the studio to the hotel, and the and Orson the phone rang, and it was Orson, and uh -huh. he wanted to know, does Chicago still remember me? Did they did they remember I'm from Chicago now? Uh -huh. What did they say? Orson used to do that whenever you were talking about him. You know, the phone would ring, and this was the first interview that I'd done by myself. Uh -huh. So he really wanted to know. 
he was constantly worried about whether he was still in the game and particularly on his home turf. So it was very cute. I mean, I, I just remember this night. I mean, I'm laughing now because I, I mean, I just loved him so much. He was mm -hmm. the most wonderful person, the most and generous it is, person. It is a great book. Oh, I, I, such fun I would hope it's still in print. I it mean. is still in print. Yeah. yeah, it's still in print. Its title was... Orson Welles' Biography. Simply and directly. Yeah. And the new book is Jack Kennedy, The Education of a Statesman by Barbara Leeming. That's L-E-A-M-I-N-G. And it's just published by Norton. And time has just about flown. I've been delighted to have you here once again. Thank you so much, Milda. I had a oh, wonderful time. Thank you for coming.